everyone, and welcome back to Inside College Admissions, a SCORE podcast. We're excited for you to join us today for another conversation in our Deans of Admissions series. You'll hear from our guests about the fall semester during a pandemic, the admissions process, how schools are adapting, suggestions and advice for families, and much more. Our strategic advisor, Peter Van Buskirk, will guide us through the conversation today with our special guest. Now over to Peter for today's interview. Welcome to Inside College Admission, conversations with admission leaders about matters affecting the college going process. My name is Peter Van Buskirk. Earlier this year, I was able to chat with 20 deans of admission about the challenges posed to their institutions by the emerging coronavirus. Today, I'm pleased that Mike Studell, Dean of Admission at Carnegie Mellon and longtime friend, has been able to break away from his credential review to uh, join us and and discuss uh, how the last eight to 10 months of COVID have affected the admission operation at at, uh, Carnegie Mellon. So welcome, Mike. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be with you again. I hope uh, all is well uh, with all of your listeners, too. Absolutely. Well, (laughs) I'm just wondering, does it seem like it's been nine months since we talked last or nine years? You know, in some ways, it seems like nine years, and in other ways, it seems, you know, in the blink of an eye, and in terms of how much had to be accomplished in such a short amount of time, it's been a race, there's no doubt about that. Well, what do things look like in your shop right now? Are, are, I would imagine you're up to your ears in, in applications, reviewing that. Uh, uh, have, have you missed a beat there? Or are things looking like, like you would expect them to look? You know, in some in some ways, um, the reading season is perhaps the most normal that we felt in quite some time. Mm. We typically read applications at home, and then you know preparing for committee. And so this is the read at home stage, and this feels very very familiar. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's good to be on some ground that feels very familiar because uh, in reality, uh, nothing really has felt very familiar since March uh, until about now. So. Uh, I'm, I'm welcoming this season, and even though reading season is a very hectic season, I'm welcoming it as something that feels very familiar to us. Excellent. Well, let's backtrack just a bit. I would imagine that coming out of the spring, there had to be some nervousness about what the entering cohort would look like in September. Uh, I think there was a lot of optimism that things would work out and students would show up, but there was also some unspoken concern that maybe students wouldn't show up, so we (laughs) wouldn't know what the class would look like until September. How did that all work out for you guys? Yeah, it worked out very well, actually. In some ways, a bit surprising. We ended up being a bit heavier and overshooting our target by some. We actually took about, I would say, 10% of our normal losses over the summer and added an additional 10% to that mm-hmm. in uh, recognizing, we called it the COVID cushion. And you know, it, we, we didn't need all of it. And so we over-enrolled by about 25, 30-ish in that range. We had a decent number of defers, uh, as you could imagine, but uh, in preparing for the normal losses plus this COVID cushion, we ended up in a pretty good place. And so um, you know, we're, we were very, um, very fortunate in that regard. Now, those who came in September, were they all coming as a full-time residential or did you need to do some remote work with them? Yes. So um, the way we worked our residence halls, everyone got a single and they went to first years as first priority. Mm -hmm. And so we were only able to accommodate roughly about half of the first years in the first semester. So the term for first year residence housing this year was only a semester. So those that came in the fall 
pack their bags at Thanksgiving and won't be returning as um, residential students in the spring. And we'll be welcoming a whole different cohort of residential students in the spring so that all of our first years will have at least been on campus if they were able to be on campus and if they chose to be on campus for one semester. Excellent, excellent. So, and, and do you sense going forward into fall of 2021, is, is, is there a likelihood of quote unquote normalcy at that point or are you still prepared for all possible contingencies? Yeah, I think I think it's it's the hope is becoming brighter, to be honest with you, for you know, return to some kind of more near normalcy. You know, uh, we're expecting that there's still gonna be some mitigation efforts that will have to be in place because of the virus. Certainly, you know, we're now having conversations about is vaccination gonna be a prerequisite to being on campus. So that's gonna be resolved, I think, soon. And you know, depending upon how quickly the vaccine becomes available uh, widely in the population, will determine, you know, how quickly we can return to normal. But um, right now, uh, Carnegie Mellon uh, is a distribution center for the vaccine for students, mm. and so um, we're looking forward to uh, essentially a, a fall that more closely resembles a normal fall than we've had in the past. That's good. Now, I would imagine too, you're, with your team emerging from your first round of credential review and early decision, did you notice anything different this year? Where, where, was there more reluctance about early decision because kids couldn't get to campus? Are things kind of looking normal, better than normal? Actually better than normal, but I, I do think that you know we're, we're up about 20% in our earlies, hmm. and which is a high number. And we think, you know, quite frankly, some of it due to the fact that, you know, there is no SAT requirement. And so we're SAT optional, ACT optional for uh, first year admission this year. So we think that fueled some of the growth for early. It's certainly fueling some of the growth that we're already seeing for regular decision as well. Mm -hmm. About 60% of our applicants to date are saying use my scores, about 40% aren't asking us not to use scores. And so the decision rests with them. And they can change their minds up until uh, decision release. Do the different colleges within the university have different expectations with regard to scores? Or is this a carte blanche? Everybody has the test option. Carte blanche. I think what we're experiencing, though, is depending upon the college, the percentages are pretty different. Mm -hmm. So as you can imagine, in fine arts, it's almost the reverse. Only 40% are saying use my scores and 60% are saying don't use my scores. And in some of our more technical programs, it's just the opposite. Um, so, so it's very interesting to follow those percentages, but they aren't uniform across all of our colleges. Sure. So what, what's it like now? I mean, you've been including scores in your review process for years, and now for 40% plus uh, of the students who apply, you, you look in that spot where the score should be on the, on the form and, and it's not there. How's that working for you right now? It's, it, you know, to be honest with you, I think um, we had a lot more anxiety than we probably should have had going into it, recognizing that, you know, it's still easy to spot really terrific kids. Mm -hmm. And so I think that while scores may have helped us sort, you know, I think without scores, it, it really causes us to perhaps dive more thoroughly into context and understanding context of the applicant. But, you know, given uh, an, a thorough understanding of context, the decisions aren't all that difficult to make. And so we know that, you know, some of the work in front of us is this time next year at the conclusion of the first, first semester of our first years, 
you know, we're going to do the, you know, the due diligence to say, is there any significant difference in the performance of those that, you know, applied with scores versus those that applied without scores? If we've done our job well, there won't be much statistical difference between the two. If not, there's obviously something that we need to learn in order to go forward. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think that this is a great study that all colleges and universities are in for that are, you know, SAT optional for the first time. You know, is there any statistical difference between the two groups? Sure. You, you said something about context and trying to understand students' performance. Could you elaborate on that a little bit more and, and help us understand what variables uh, get a little more attention now than perhaps might have gotten before? Yeah, I think, to be honest with you, it's caused us to really dig into the profile much more deeply than we have had in the past. This is the profile of the high school? Exactly. Yeah. So, to, first of all, to see what coursework is offered, what advanced coursework is available, you know, the students' choices within that, how the, the school has pivoted as a result of COVID-19, and what we need to consider as it relates to looking at a transcript. So uh, it's almost as if we have to look at, you know, school transcripts now with, with a different lens mm -hmm. and a better sensitivity, given the fact that, you know, even those schools that we're very familiar with, they've had changes. They've had to change. They've had to adjust. And so, you know, understanding how they've, they've accommodated students in the, in, the, in the midst of the pandemic has really been helpful in, in informing how we should, what we should consider in making um, these admission decisions. And, and, and speaking of context, because the spring semester ended like a fire drill with nobody coming back, are you expecting more concrete information from students academically in the fall, even before looking at, at an early decision outcome? Yeah, I, it's certainly, particularly for, you know, many schools did go pass-fail uh, for the second semester. And so, you know, we're, we're eager for, you know, uh, any kind of indication as to how those grades look in this half of the year. And so some of the students that have applied early decision have already sent us, you know, first uh, rating periods worth of grades just to, you know, essentially confirm that they're still on track and, you know, things are progressing as you would expect. And so it just alleviates a lot of the question that comes, you know, when trying to make admission decisions and the only thing that you've got is, you know, essentially a completed 10th grade year and just the first half of the 11th grade year without much more, you know, you can understand the uncertainty of, of making, you know, those kinds of choices. And so, so schools have been great, to be honest with you, in, in helping us understand that the, the, the performance levels of these students really remains very much unchanged. And in fact, for many cases, really admirable in the, in the face of, you know, rapid change, rapid adjustment, mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the, the continued back and forth in terms of we're in school this week, we're not in school next week, and, you know, we're hybrid the week after. And my heart goes out to schools that are trying to essentially achieve some kind of normalcy in the midst of such tremendous upheaval. Part of the context, I would imagine, can come from the students themselves. And I know that Carnegie Mellon not only uses the common application that has an essay, a standard essay, and now there's a COVID essay option, but, but you also have a number of optional essays too. What are you trying to discern about the student through that combination of, of essays that you look at? Well, I think certainly as it relates to the common applications COVID question, we're trying to better understand what the student's perception of how they've been affected by the pandemic has really meant to them and what they want us to understand about 
how they've had to make adjustments in their either academic experience or, you know, as it relates to the desire to test, but the inability to test, it really is very open-ended in terms of anything that they want to share with us. Not really meant for evaluation as much as it really is help us, you know, put on the right lens to look at your application. And so those essays have been really helpful, to be honest with you. You know, our normal essays really are much more about trying to discern from the student but essentially a number of things that we look for, typically much more, I would say, character attributes that are related to persistence and success. And so some of those are performance attributes, some of those are ethical um, characteristics, but, you know, essentially, I think, you know, there are signs that, you know, students um, reveal about those characteristics, whether or not they know of them, mm-hmm. they definitely reveal themselves through essays and through recommendations, which really help us, you know, develop confidence that we're on the right track in making a positive decision in these cases. Excellent. Well, we'll, we'll move off of the credential review here in a moment, but I'm, I'm curious, what does your gut tell you about the future of testing? Because, Prior to this year, roughly a thousand colleges and universities were test optional. Now, because of COVID, that number's grown by approximately 60%. That's, that's a pretty big swing. Some people would suggest that that's the beginning of the death knell for testing or standardized testing. Others are saying, well, not so fast. You know, it could be. I, you know, I think the, the thing that will give us confidence is, you know, at this time next year, looking at, you know, is there a significant difference between those that we admitted with scores and those that we admitted without scores? Mm-hmm. And, and to be honest with you, as I said earlier, you know, it's still really easy to spot good kids, whether or not they have tests. And so I, I will say this, in honesty, my own confidence is growing um, that, you know, we can definitely make these decisions without tests. And, and so clearly in a data-rich institution such as ours, we want the data to, you know, to back up the gut, uh, the gut level <laughs> feeling. But I think that, you know, if we're doing our jobs, you know, the right way and are keyed in on the right um, attributes, I don't really s- sense that there's going to be uh, much of a disparity between those admitted with tests and without. And there's a little bit of a footnote on, on the testing situation, too, and that is that for years, institutions, and I'm sure Carnegie Mellon's been a part of this, too, have used students testing experience as part of the lead generation process. If fewer students take tests, fewer names are available to you. Have you begun to wrestle with that possibility that you you need to kind of rethink how lead generation begins, how you open up the top end of your funnel, or are you well ahead of the curve on that? In some ways, fortunately, we've been backing off of searches, buying names based on standardized testing results. And so we, we, we have, you know, really gotten ourselves to the point where we, we buy very little mm. compared to the days 10, 15 years ago, where we bought, you know, over a hundred thousand names. We're definitely not even half that now. And, you know, using search in a much more targeted way. And to be honest with you, I think a lot of it is, has really gotten to, for us to the point where we're not so concerned about students that find their way into the applicant pool as stealth applicants. Mm -hmm. We recognize that there are many ways to learn about colleges and universities today, and that we're not the only source of the right information. And so students are finding access to lots of information in order to help them make decisions about whether or not to apply. So we basically tried to stop stressing about how large our inquiry file is and how many students we're searching 
you know, it's not like every message that a student receives about a college today is has to come from the college itself. So we want to be, you know, in the right places in terms of working with organizations that provide content to students like SCORE and like others that provide great services to students in terms of information. Yeah, we want to be in those places. But do we have to be the source of inquiry generation? No, not necessarily. And so we've let go of that and, and don't really mind that, you know, over half of our applicants today are stealth. That's great. And, you know, quite frankly, if they're getting the right information on their own to learn about the institution, so be it. And we basically stop stressing about it. We don't collect inquiry cards anymore. We just are out there as information providers more than anything else. Yeah, what, what's an inquiry card? Again? Exactly. That, yeah. that uh, betrays uh, our, our own generational roots. In this. Yeah. yeah. But speaking of that, how has your staff been able to pivot in terms of maintaining the connection? Because I, I would imagine there are a lot of young people and their parents who feel dislocated from the colleges over the last eight to 10 months. Yet, given the numbers you mentioned earlier about your applicants so far, it seems seemingly a lot of folks have found you regardless, and you found them. How has that worked? Uh, well, you know, it's it's so interesting. I mean, there certainly was an initial period of shock in that, you know, we, we can't do business the way we normally do. But a- after that wore off, recognizing, I think our first response was we've got to try to create online what we could do in person. Mm-hmm. And then we recognized we can pretty much let ourselves off the hook to try to do that effectively and really try to take advantage of what the crisis brought us in the way of opportunity, you know, to be creative and to do things that we've never tried before and and to ultimately, you know, try to provide access to students to information that we've not really thought about before. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the creative side of this began to really show with the kind of programming and the kind of engagement that we were able to do in a much more, I think, interesting way than just going out there and giving the the dog and pony show, if you will, about, you know, what college is like. And the fact that we recognize the opportunity for repeat customers. And, you know, we don't have to tell the whole story all at once. We can spin the story over time in, you know, segments. So that, you know, students don't have to commit much more than 15 or 20 minutes at a stretch because we recognize the weariness that comes with Zoom. Mm -hmm. And so don't want to keep students, you know, sitting there while we drone on and on and on. So these, these sessions have really been opportunities to be short and concise and creative on topics that are relevant to students. Some of it focused on Carnegie Mellon, some of it just focused on the process itself. And it's, it's really energized our folks. And quite frankly, I think we've had better interactions with students this way, you know, versus the old way of doing business. And so, so it'll be interesting to see, you know, how we balance both when, you know, the world does return to a more sense of normalcy and, you know, travel is now kind of part of part and parcel of what we do. How will we continue to sustain the efforts that we've developed over this last year And, you know, can we back off of some of those in-person opportunities that we felt like we had to do for the sake of reaching a much broader audience with more creative ways to reach them? Well, interestingly, it would seem that distance recruiting is facilitated through what you're working on now and and the the virtual recruitment. I I know that you've done a lot of overseas recruitment, but it's still hard to be in all places at one time. But now you can be accessible to anyone anywhere in the world uh, at a keystroke. 
Exactly. Yeah. It's been really wonderful. And even connecting with counselors, we've done coffees with, you know, counselors periodically throughout the, the time during COVID. And, you know, we've connected with counselors in ways that we've never been able to connect with counselors in the past. So I think that yes, the pandemic is a crisis and yes, it's caused a lot of upheaval, but it's also provided a lot of, you know, opportunity to rethink how we interact and engage with each other and certainly appreciate the time when it comes, when we can see people again in person mm -hmm. and, you know, recognize and perhaps not take that so much for granted as we, we had in the past. Well, absolutely. But I think there's, there's some justifiable concern, however, that in, in the current scheme of things, there's a, a population that, that's being missed. I mean, those folks who have access to um, the technology who might have some predisposition toward higher education, et cetera, are, are probably connecting very well and very quickly with you. But those folks who are otherwise marginalized, who might not have the same access to technology, good counseling, et cetera, are arguably perhaps cast adrift here. How do you see Carnegie Mellon and, and higher education in general uh, maintaining the kind of momentum that I thought we had with, with those students uh, prior to the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I think those populations definitely need special attention and special effort. And we have tried to uh, essentially devote uh, some of our time to reaching them, mm -hmm. mostly with information about the process, whether it be admission or financial aid and, you know, what, how to prepare ultimately course-wise. And then ultimately, what about the application components? How do you do a college search? You know, what about financial aid? And I hope we're having success. We're certainly seeing students in this, in this realm. You know, if, if there's any hope at all, it's, you know, looking at some of our common application numbers and recognizing we're up in first gens, we're up in students that have, you know, requested uh, fee waivers, we're up in our, some of our underrepresented populations. And so there's encouraging signs that even though they, they, there may be disparity in terms of access, Mm -hmm. We're certainly seeing some positive signs that, you know, we're able to reach some and ultimately the numbers are, are starting to bear that out. But we're certainly watching what Common Application is reporting in terms of those challenges associated with first gen and lower socioeconomic students as it relates to Common Application completion. No doubt about it. And, you know, I think that they've been sounding the alarm now for several months about, you know, how that, that population is just not applying at the same level they had in, in prior years. But I can tell you so far, that's not been our experience. Uh, I don't know that it's attributed directly to the, our efforts, but you know, I think that it's an encouraging sign nonetheless. And, but I, I do agree with your point that you know, these populations, whether in person or remote, need special focus, special attention, and special thought about how we can, you know, increase their access to higher education. Absolutely. Regardless of one's background orientation to college, it's cost and affordability are still front of mind for many. And even, even for those who, you know, two years ago may have thought like, uh, you know, it's, it, it costs a lot, but we can manage this. Then COVID hits and the economy starts to do some things that don't feel very good. So they, they do as they're told, they get the FAFSA on October the 1st, they fill it, oh, how can we fill this out? It's looking at our 2019 tax return. And that's not the reality that we're facing today. Do you get many conversations like that with families that are just perplexed about how to represent 
to you and to others the reality of their current financial circumstance rather than the 2019. Yeah, the special consideration process is a formalized one at Carnegie Mellon where, you know, if a family is experiencing a reduction in income from the tax year that they used to complete their FAFSA and profile forms, uh, it's a process that we can use to take them through first an initial package of aid and then a revised package of aid based on some of the, uh, the forecasts for reduction. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a challenge. And, you know, some of it comes with professional judgment in these cases. Some of it is ultimately, you know, working with the family closely to make sure that they're not over or underestimating the resources that will become available at the end of the tax year. So, you know, there's, there's certainly some uncertainty, you know, associated with um, special consideration processes. But I think in general, institutions want to help families mm-hmm. through this difficult time and recognize that, you know, there's got to be some flexibility that's on us to, to build into our own processes to make sure that we're helping families through what is, you know, perhaps one of the most challenging times in our lifetime. Well, absolutely. And Mike, I'd like to check your thoughts on something a little bit different right now. Carnegie Mellon's had a long-standing reputation for excellence in athletics as well. And there are a lot of young people right now who in high school would be competing in winter sports who can't. And there are a lot of coaches on Division three campuses who would like to be recruiting students. What are you observing about the manner in which the Division Three athletic program is, is able to function uh, with recruitment this year? You know, it's interesting because, um, you know, the coaching community is a pretty well-connected community. Uh, and so even though, you know, many of these athletes have not been able to participate, you know, on the field or in the pool or, or on the track in this, in this cycle, the coaches in secondary schools and the coaches associated with CBOs around the country definitely still know their athletes. Mm-hmm. So they, our coaches rely on their connection with, um, you know, high school coaches and coaches from community-based organizations that, you know, ultimately are helping kids that are aspiring to be athletes in college. And so interestingly, so far in the early decision slate that we looked at for athletics, it was just as large as it was last year. You know, we're not seeing, you know, any uh, disparity in numbers so far in terms of recruited athletes. You know, I think if this would continue on for another year or so, there may be some high school coaches that may not be aware of the athletic talents of the students coming through. But, you know, these students that are seniors this year were juniors last year. And for many of them, they did have the fall season and even part of the, you know, the winter season to finish. And so, you know, I, I think we're lucky in that we're, we're relying on the coach-to-coach contact in terms of uh, helping students that want to be varsity athletes at the collegiate level. In, in some ways, in a non-religious manner, this is still faith-based recruitment, though. Yeah, because to some extent, yeah. And that connection with the coach. I, I remember when I was in your role, uh, the, the coaches were pretty steadfast in saying that, uh, well, we just can't recruit somebody unless we've seen them play. And now they, they have to operate on some degree of faith. Well, when, when you think about 
the better days when when we move past COVID and, and folks are able to experience life as we've known it for a long time. What about your operation do you think is likely to stay? I mean, do, there's been a lot of innovation born out of necessity. How much of what you find yourself doing out of necessity this year do you think is going to be there, you know, a couple of years from now? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, in honesty, we're asking ourselves a lot about that. You know, I don't know that we'll have the full story until we've had, you know, an opportunity to be on the other side and look back and say, what have we learned uh, and what's valuable in keeping and what's, what's not. I recognize, you know, the whole remote recruitment piece has been, I think, a valuable experience for all of us to go through and recognizing that we can't just recreate what we would do in person. We have to rethink the constraints of, you know, how we deliver information about colleges and universities, what kind of relationships students want to have in the remote space, what they're willing to give us in terms of time and attention, how parents want to be involved. I think that it's wonderful in that it has been a tremendously great opportunity to be creative with the complexity and the constraints of COVID. When you remove that, I I would suspect that there's going to be a lot that we'll continue on with I think the challenge will be how do we balance it with the return to the in-person experience, whether it be on our campus and kids and their families coming to campus or going out from campus and expecting to interact with students and their families at their locations and not ours. Time will tell, you know, and I think that in some ways there may be less willingness to do things in person when literally they, they recognize the value of doing it remotely and perhaps saving the in-person experience for when they're admitted. It's all conjecture at this point, but I think the world is, is going to be changed and we have to be at least really on our toes to decipher what's really important in this new world and how we make those adjustments to continue the efforts that have been helpful and useful and effective and what can we literally stop doing because the world has turned and you know what we do in that space is no longer effective so it'll, it's a tremendous opportunity for us there's no doubt about that absolutely well and, and, and a new world to use your terms indeed which means that there are still a lot of families who have had some connection with the college going process either mom or dad went to college older brother sister etc and now suddenly it looks a lot different. As we wrap things up here, what, what might be one or two questions or thoughts you would pass along to that family that is now quite perplexed with, how do we approach this animal that doesn't look like <laughs> the, the process that we knew in the past? What, what, what should people be thinking about uh, and concerned about as, as they enter into the decision-making with college? Yeah, I think, I think the good thing is that there's a tremendous amount of resources that are available that, that didn't exist before. We had to create them. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I, I don't think those are going to go away. I think that you know, those resources, whether they be synchronous or asynchronous, they're, they're out there. And quite frankly, I think the challenge for them is that there, there's not, the challenge isn't that there's not enough resources. I think the challenge is how do I digest you know, the, the mountain of material that is out there uh, and not be paralyzed by, oh my gosh, how do I start? Mm-hmm. And so, and some of that, you know, is obviously, you know, we, we're reaching out to families to say, we're here, you know, if we can help, 
and you know some of it is trying to establish a relationship and a a point of trust in terms of helping students through the process but for those students who may be from more challenging situations challenging backgrounds mm-hmm. challenging circumstances i mean there are cbos to help community based organizations to help certainly school counselors if they have the bandwidth to help students in in these situations i think you know are worth their weight in gold in terms of helping students through the mountain of resources to find the ones that'll be most appropriate for them in in navigating the space. So I think, you know, if anything, we've gone from a place where, you know, this population may have been overlooked and and now, you know, there's this t- tremendous amount of information that's been, you know, essentially developed for all uh, and, you know, for those that are maybe the uninitiated in this process it's where do i start digesting it all and how do i get gain access to what's most important to me and that might be the biggest challenge of all dive in don't don't hesitate right exactly i remember what that was like uh, as a as a kid uh, learning how to swim diving in was always <laughs> a challenge but what yeah. once in the water you know things tended to work out pretty well well it's you know for us for you and i it was that bag of college materials underneath the bed and it's just like oh my gosh i got so much stuff where do i start Exactly. And, and in many ways, you know, now it's not hiding under your bed. Now it's all online. Now it's like, okay, where do I find it and how do I gain access to it? But it's there. And how do I make sense of what I got? That's yeah, right. Exactly. Mike, this is great. I always enjoy talking with you about the process because you and, and uh, your colleagues at Carnegie Mellon have been standard bearers in terms of developing information and, and creating process for the rest of us. So Thanks for taking some time today to share your perspective on what's happening. I trust that this will be very helpful to the people who listen in. I, I wish you the very best. I hope you stay safe. Well, thank you, Peter. It's always a pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I wish all of your listeners good success in the college admission process as it unfolds for the remainder of this time. Absolutely. Well, be safe, everybody. Take care. Bye.